precious words that we sing, all expressing our faith in you, a tender love that we have for you, O Christ, Uh, a love that um, is your own gift to us in an ultimate sense, and yet it's a love, too, that is ours, and that is fostered and growing and ever-expanding as we learn more of you and the wonders of your grace. Pray that even as we begin walking through your book and First Peter, the book that you've given to us, your church, and that we would be encouraged by it, that our hearts would be comforted, that they would be instructed, that they would be convicted and challenged, and that we would be reminded of the wonder of Jesus Christ, who died and who rose again for sinners to purchase and a kingdom of which we have a part in his inheritance to await our returning king that we might live forever in your presence, delighting in righteousness, in your glory, in heaven, which your servant Jonathan Edwards described as a world of love. How much we long to be there together. So, to this end, we ask and we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, as you know, we're going to begin now our embarking on a new book of the Bible. This is chapter 1, verse 1 uh, this morning. Actually, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 uh, this morning that we'll try to get through. And the goal is to try to finish this before the end of the year, in case you were wondering. Uh, not in several years down the road, but we don't want to rush, but we do want to want to go through as, uh, as efficiently as we can. That we can cover it and keep the context and so forth. And so 1 Peter is a precious book to us and one that we're familiar with at different levels, but hopefully will become even more so uh, in the days ahead. And 1 Peter is written, as you know, to a people who are suffering, to a people who are suffering to various degrees because of their faith in Christ, because of their love for Jesus Christ. And so 1 Peter was written to encourage them and to instruct them. And as all of Scripture, to encourage and to instruct us as well. For although God's people are suffering in different ways throughout the world, there is a cost everywhere to naming the name of Christ. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy that those who desire to live godly in this present age will suffer. So suffering is a part of being a Christian in this day until that kingdom comes that we are awaiting. And so as Christians, we need to understand that this world is not our home. It's not our home. It feels like our home sometimes, especially in America, it feels like our home. We have a lot of comforts here. That's why sometimes people come over with the intention to go back, and they don't. Why? Because it sucks you in. There's abundance here that we don't have or that others don't have throughout the world. And so A lot of times this feels like our home. We spend a lot of time on our homes, making them feel more and more homey. And that's not bad in and of itself, but it is if that becomes the ultimate in our life. And so God wants to always remind us that this is not our home. And there's two essential ways that he does that. Two essential ways that he helps us to long for where our citizenship truly lies, that is, with him. Let me just mention them to you, and they'll serve as an introduction into 1 Peter. One is through the normal process of spiritual growth. He says in chapter 2, verse 2, that we are 
to long for the pure milk of his word, that by it we might grow in respect to salvation. So as we spend our time in God's word and we grow in our understanding of who he is and the glories and the wonders of Jesus Christ and of salvation and of grace, of righteousness, of wisdom, all of these things related to the kingdom of God, then we more and more in that process become tired of our own sin. We become more and more in that process tired of a world and weary of a world that is blind to the glory of Christ, that does not honor him, that does not live in a way to please him, that does not listen to him, that does not yield to his lordship. And the more we long for the righteousness of Christ in its fullness to be with him, to be out of the unrighteousness of the world, and the more we grow then to be like Christ, the more that this place, this world, our homes feels strange to us. Would you say that, those who are growing in Christ? That the more you grow as a Christian, the less attached you feel to this world here? Those things that brought you a lot of joy as a non-Christian, whether it be material things, whether it be circumstances of this world, just become less and less important as you grow in Christ. The, the world feels strange and stranger as we grow to be more like him. And our hearts long to be with him and we long to be in our true home. This is what Paul said. Just listen. Uh, in Second Corinthians chapter 5, he says, speaking of the resurrection, he says, Now God has prepared us for this very purpose, or the one who has prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge, and therefore being always of good courage, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That's where our home is, our true home. And therefore we have also as our ambition whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So one way that God produces this sense of longing for our true home and feeling as strangers and aliens in this world is through the process of spiritual growth. But then there's another way, and one that, again, we as his people are familiar with at various degrees, but it's true for all of us in some way. And it is through suffering. It's through suffering. When we suffer, we're, we're robbed essentially of the comforts that this world provides. And we long for those true comforts that are provided only in Christ, the comforts of faith. So we feel that through persecution and suffering, a reminder that our home again is not here, that we are at this time strangers in a strange land, that our final rest is yet to come. And as I mentioned earlier, the suffering in some form or another is going Come to God's people. Jesus said this when he was leaving. You remember these words. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. So we belong to a different kind of kingdom. We belong and have our allegiance to a Lord, world, to a Lord, to the, whom the world hates. And so it's no surprise that they hate us as well. 
And again, though the brethren suffer in different places and in different ways throughout the world under the sovereign hand of God, some more severe, some less severe, some physical, some cultural, there is suffering. For our brethren in many Muslim areas, the suffering is largely physical. There's a legitimate fear for their lives. There's a legitimate fear for the loss of their family. There's a legitimate fear that injury will come to them and to those that they love. That there will be a loss of property, a loss of wealth. For us, it's more cultural, although it may slowly become more physical. Here, God's people are casualties of cultural wars that have real practical implications. Ask those who've lost jobs. Family businesses for not making a cake for a homosexual couple who've lost their life savings, who have become outcast to many, who daily have to receive the ridicule of those who want to spout out their vengeance to them because they don't buy into their agenda. Those who lose children. I read recently of a couple whose son later decided that he was, or their daughter, who later decided that they wanted to be a male And the state decided in the child's favor and took them out of their home and gave them to another relative. That's a kind of persecution, and that's the kind of thing that will only increase. So it's it's dangerous naming the name of Christ. It comes with a certain cost. And these whom, to whom Peter is writing understood that. There was, a, there was a cost that they were experiencing for their faith in Christ, for their naming the name of Christ. Now, the letter makes that very clear that these are people then who are suffering. Let me just give you a few examples. And we're just broadly looking at things this morning. The themes that are addressed this morning we'll cover in more detail in the weeks and the months ahead. But these are people who are suffering. Look at verse 6. These are those whom he said, You rejoice now, even though for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. There were all kinds of difficulties that were being endured by these to whom Peter's writing. In chapter 2, verse 21, Christ's suffering is held out as an example for them to follow. He says, as a matter of fact, it is for this purpose you have been called to follow in the sufferings of Christ. In chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, these are a people who are being maligned. They are being slandered. They're being reviled. He says in verse 16 that you're to keep a good conscience for in the thing in which you're slandered and those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. They were experiencing a cultural cost there for naming the name of Christ. And he repeats that in other places. In 4 or 5 he says that some are being maligned because they no longer are willing to live the lifestyle of sin out of which they were called. And he says they... They malign you because you don't run to the same excesses of dissipation. In other words, dissolute, sinful living associated with their pagan past, their their past of unbelief. In chapter 12, verse 12 of chapter 4, he says, Don't be surprised of the fiery ordeal among you. And here it's ramped up a little bit more, the persecution for some. A fiery ordeal that has come upon them for their testing. He says, don't be surprised as if something strange were happening to you. But in fact, this fiery ordeal was consistent with what they should expect in sharing the sufferings of Christ. Verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. 
In verse 19 of chapter 4, he says, Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In chapter 5, verse 8, he says, There's an adversary prowling around like a roaring lion seeking those whom he might devour. So in other words, these are Christians who are suffering for their testimony in Christ. There's, they're, they're paying a cost. There's, there's various levels of persecution. They're being ostracized by those who are close to them. They have a government that is coming and bearing its weight and authority on them. They have those who are reviling them and maligning them, all because of their naming the name of Christ. So they're suffering. They're suffering. They're experiencing various trials. But note here, again, it's specifically trials that are related to their testimony of faith in Christ. These aren't just trials in general. These are those trials that come specifically because they name the name of Christ. And so they're feeling the conflict. The conflict of belonging to a spiritual kingdom of which Christ is Lord while still living in this world, this kingdom, over whom John would say it is under the sway of the God of this world, even the evil one. And so we're waiting with them. We're, we're waiting with them. And we're saying that, Lord, we, we are enduring the, the difficulties that come from following you, but we are longing and waiting with them for the kingdom that is to come. And so we find a particular joy in, in the promise of Revelation 11, for example, where it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And that, that's a truth that we rest in, but it's a truth that's yet to come. It's not a reality. Christ will bring his kingdom of righteousness, uh, but it's not a kingdom that's here yet. And so as long as we're in this world, we, are to know, we will know suffering. And so Peter's writing to comfort us. He's writing to comfort them. He's writing to comfort us. Now, there's many ways that you could approach this first part, well, any of the book for that matter, but particularly these first few verses. But what I want to emphasize here, and I think what Peter is emphasizing in the broad picture, is God's grace to a suffering people. God's grace to a suffering people. And so there's three ways that we want to look at this grace that he identifies And I frame them really as exhortations. And they're these. They're in your bulletin. That we are to recognize God's grace in Scripture, to be encouraged by God's eternal grace in Christ, and to rest assured in the present fullness of God's grace. What's key through all of those, of course, is God's grace. God's grace. God's goodness to them and to us who deserve wrath, but instead live in the fullness of his mercy and of his kindness of his goodness to us as his children. Let's look at the first one here. Let's look at the first part of the verse. He says to Peter, Peter begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, two weeks ago, we did just a brief overview of Peter's life, giving a general sketch of the man and showing that he was a man who was shaped by God to fulfill the ministry that that he would call him to. And we'll swing back to that, but I want to notice first here, now the office to which Christ called him to, namely, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter's writing that to establish his authority right at the beginning. Now, most likely, Peter is writing from Rome. That's probably the best identification of Babylon. He says in verse 13, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends your greetings. So does my son Mark. In other words, he's writing from a place he identifies as Babylon, which is probably best seen as Rome. 
He's riding through Silvanus, he says in chapter 512, who's acting either here as a carrier of the letter or as one who was taking dictation by Peter and writing it down or assisting Peter in some manner in the writing of this letter. But in either case, this is Peter's letter. This is Peter, the disciple. This is Peter, the apostle, who is writing to the church. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, let's just consider briefly what does that mean? What does that mean to be an apostle of Jesus Christ? What does that term mean? In a general sense, it means simply one who acts as a delegate, a messenger, or a sent one. I won't go through all of the references, but it's used that way many times. Actually, it's not only the 12 who are called apostles. It can be used more broadly than that. In John 13, 16, Jesus uses, or the word is translated simply as one who is sent. In Acts 14, it refers to both Barnabas and Paul, Andronicus and Junius in Romans 16, 7. It's used to refer to many brethren in 2 Corinthians 8 and Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, where it's translated as a messenger. It's also referred to as, uh, used as a title to refer to Jesus in Hebrews 3, 1, that he is an apostle and high priest. So, Broadly, the term speaks of one who comes as a delegate, a representative, and a messenger. However, it's also, and this is how Peter's using it here, a term, and this is how we're most familiar with it, a term that refers to a particular office, an office that was assigned to 14 people. You might be wondering, 14 people? I thought there were only 12. Well, in fact, it was, it was a designation originally for who? Judas, Judas, who was named among the twelve, who was named as a, as a special representative and beneficiary of Christ's earthly ministry. He was counted among the apostles. As a matter of fact, Peter says in Acts chapter 1, he was counted one among us. He was counted as among us, but he left his proper station and he went to his own place, namely to a place of judgment. And so there was a thirteenth name. Do you remember his name? Matthias. Yep, exactly. Matthias, in chapter 1 of Acts, Matthias was called, he was chosen by God through lots to replace Peter. Who was the 14th? Paul, exactly. Paul was the 14th apostle. He's the only one who was specifically in the New Testament given this as an office, as a particular office to the church. Paul, as you know, was said that he was an apostle to the Gentiles. He was an apostle unusually and untimely called. Namely, it was he was the only one called specifically by the risen Lord. Remember, on the road to Damascus. He appeared to him, and then later, Christ, the risen Christ revealed to him that he was a chosen instrument of his who would bear the gospel to the Gentile nations primarily. And so he was then the 14th one to receive this as an office. And so as an office, this, this word apostle encompasses a title that bears with it great authority and great privilege. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter is one chosen instrument who would be a revelation of new covenant doctrine, of new covenant truth. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he says this, that you are no longer strangers and aliens, your fellow citizens with the saints, who are of God's houses, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. 
In other words, the revelation that would come through the ministry of these chosen instruments of God, particularly those who hold the office of prophet, would be used by the risen Lord to establish doctrine and instruction to the new covenant church. So the new covenant scriptures would come through those who bear this office. And that was something given only to a unique few. In this sense, then, the apostles are distinguished from all the rest. And that's clearly seen throughout Scripture. Again, I won't go through all of the references. But Peter, as we know, was not just an apostle. He's writing here with the authority and the privilege and the position from the office of apostleship. But he even stands, in some sense, above the rest because Peter was also called to be a leader. Peter was a leader among the twelve. He was a leader among the apostles. And the, the book itself reminds us of that, right? His name was changed to Peter, to rock, by Christ himself. And he said, you are the one, and through your particular ministry, and through the truth that you proclaim, and that I'll use you to open up the doors to the Gentiles, and use you to be a mouthpiece specifically to the Jews, through that message, I'm going to use you as a leader, and one to whom I will have a unique Role in my building the church, in my building the church. Acts, Matthew 16, 16, we remember that. And so he was. So Peter was the mouth that God used to proclaim the New Testament gospel. First New Testament sermon, uh, sermon in Acts 2, 47, and 3,000 souls were saved. In Acts 10, it was through the mouth of Peter that the way to the Gentiles was opened when he proclaimed the gospel to Cornelius and his house. So Peter played a specific role And among the apostles, he played a unique role as opening the door of the gospel to both the Jews and to the Gentiles. But there's something else contained in this term. There's something else contained in this identification. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, as one who was on the front line of bearing the message of Christ to the world, he was also one who knew uniquely about suffering for the name of Christ. About suffering. You remember that Jesus told Peter, we've looked at that before, but you remember at the end of John where he told him you're going to be bound later in life and you're going to be led somewhere that you don't want to go. In other words, the indication there is that, Peter, there's going to be a cost to your role of feeding my sheep and tending my lambs. Being an apostle was a dangerous position to have, was, was a dangerous office to have. It wasn't One simply filled with glory, it was filled with suffering and it was filled with service. You'll remember at the beginning of Acts, who were the first ones to go to prison? Who were the first ones to get beaten by the leadership of the Jews? Who were the first ones to be on the front line bearing the first blows of opposition against the name of Christ? It was the apostles. It was the apostles. As a matter of fact, Paul holds up suffering as the very mark of his office And the sincerity of his ministry in 2 Corinthians 12. It was through his suffering that he was identified as a servant of Christ. He says that in other places as well. He says in 2 Corinthians 4. Let me get there. He says this. This is how he identifies what it means to be an apostle. He says we are afflicted in every way. But not crushed, perplexed, not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our body. 
For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal bodies. He says the, something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ, using a bit of sarcasm to the Corinthian church. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we as apostles of Christ, implied, are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless and we toil, working with our hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world and the dregs of all things, even unto now. You want to be an apostle of Christ? That's what you're signing on to. That's what you're signing on to. The scum of the world, the dregs of society, the persecuted, the weak, the suffering, all for the sake of the gospel. So when Peter writes, he writes here in the authority of Christ. He writes as one who's been called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He writes as a man who also knew what it meant to suffer. He knew what it meant to suffer to be faithful to carry out his mission. He also knew what it was to be driven by the reality of the glory that was to come. Paul said in Romans 8 that he didn't consider the sufferings of this world even even worthy to be considered of the glory that was to come. And the kingdom would be established here on earth. He was one who knew suffering. He also was one then who learned humility from that. And we looked at that before, but he even picks that up here. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, your witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for certain gain, but with eagerness, not lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. And Peter was one well-chosen and well-prepared to be that example, to demonstrate that humility. So Peter writes as a leader, he writes as an apostle, but he writes as a man who's been humbled by Christ and made ready to bear such distinction. Made ready to bear such distinction. One who is proud of heart is not ready to bear such distinction and such authority. One who is broken, one who has been brought low, one whose life is so clearly given into the service of his master, that's a man who's ready to bear this title and to bear that office. And so he does. And so this is an example then of what Jesus told him would happen. He says in Luke 22, when you have turned from your failure and from your humiliation, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. This is a fulfillment of the ministry that Christ assigned to him when he says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep and tend my lambs. Now, why do we want to mention all of that? And how does that fit under the title of this point? God's grace to us in Scripture. Because under Peter, as a prepared man, the grace and wisdom of God is demonstrated with, think, listen, how he gives us Scripture. How he gives us Scripture. 
Did you ever think of that? God didn't just give us scripture, a systematic theology dropped down out of heaven. He could have given us, instead of Ten Commandments, maybe he'd give us the 20 instructions for the new covenant people of God. But he didn't do that. He gave us scripture written through flesh and blood. He gave us scripture through men who knew what it was to suffer and knew what it was to live lives that were consistent with the very doctrine and truth they were proclaiming. And so here is a man who wrote not only under the guidance of the, of the Spirit, but he is a man who wrote from experience. He's a man who wrote from experience. He wrote as a man that we can connect with. We love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our hearts. We look to him as our final example. We long till that day to be conformed to his image. But he's sinless. He's sinless. And God gives us men like Peter, who wasn't sinless. He was forgiven, but he wasn't sinless. God gives us a man like Peter, who was weak and who was stumbling and who was failing, and yet also who was strong and who was trusting God and who was faithful to his ministry. And so he gives us scripture, God does in his wisdom and in his kindness and in his grace, through a man who has suffered. He suffered consistent with the way that the people that he's writing to are suffering. Again, he's a man who knows failure in the face of fear. He knows the foolishness of trusting in himself. He knows the reality of forgiveness and restoration in Christ. He knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to witness Christ's suffering. He knows also, as firsthand experience and witness, that the Christ whom he saw suffered is the Christ who rose, raised from the dead, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he sits in power awaiting his return. So God wisely gave us his word through a man of like weakness as us, who knows what it means to struggle. He's lived out these truths that he proclaims. So he does so with authority, but he does so with humility as well. Let me give you just one verse to frame that, and then we'll move on. Paul says this, and you don't have to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father, verse 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So essentially, Paul is saying there what Peter is demonstrating for us, that He's able to share a comfort, to build up others who are suffering with a comfort that comes from God, a comfort that he himself has experienced as one who has suffered. And so Peter writes to us with that. And in that, we see the great grace and we see the great mercy and the great wisdom of God. And so this is an encouragement to us. It's an encouragement to us that when we read about Paul's pointing us heavenward when he Read about Paul knowing our identification in Christ that we might be strong in persecution. When we read about, excuse me, Peter who points us to look for our hope that is coming, our inheritance, what will not fade away. We're hearing that from a man who has walked the same road he's calling us to walk. Who's put into practice the same thing he's telling us to lay hold of by grace. So the first point here is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ should be a phrase that helps us 
recognize God's grace in Scripture, the way that he has communicated to us these encouragements. Secondly, and I doubt very seriously I'll get all the way through, but let's look at this next. Be encouraged by God's eternal grace. Be encouraged by God's eternal grace. Who does he identify? He says, those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. To those who are chosen, to those who are chosen and scattered throughout the world, each of these locations that he mentions, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, each of these are Roman provinces that were established by the emperor Claudius. Today, they're actually modern-day Turkey. Modern-day Turkey. Interesting. But here, these are people who are scattered throughout, dispersed throughout Roman provinces, and as such are experiencing a kind of suffering. And although Peter is writing to them as a Jew, and even though Peter had a particular ministry to the Jews, in reality, most of these Uh, people that he's addressing were likely largely Gentiles, largely Gentiles. There's a lot of hints of that throughout the letter that we'll look at as we go along. He, He mentions that you inherited from your futile way of life from your forefathers. Likely they are not, not merely Jews from, who inherited from those who went before them, a, a futile religious system, but Gentiles who inherited from those who went before them and an empty life of paganism and here they are called to something greater. These are those who are living in the world, living under this Roman rule, probably largely Gentiles who are being addressed by Peter as a Jew. And in doing that, Peter brings into them, interestingly, a lot of Old Testament allusions. He builds and rests heavily on the promises of Old Testament scriptures. Matter of fact, he, he tells them in verse 16, you should be holy for, my, for I am holy. He pictures the idea of inheritance in verse 4. He pictures the idea of a, a choice stone, a precious stone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed and you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And on throughout it goes, identifying them with the people of God Identifying them with those who stand in the line of the promises of God, even that he gave to his people, Israel. Now, when we come to this opening section here, though, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout uh, these different lands, there's a couple of questions we have to ask. And one is this. Uh, how exactly is Peter intending us to understand uh, these terms, these identification? Now, in your New American Standard, let me illustrate this for you. In your New American Standard, for those who have it, it says this. I read it earlier. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, so on. And then at the end of it, he says, who are chosen? Who are chosen? If you have an English Standard Version, an ESV, it says this. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. You see that if you have different versions? In other words, there's two different ways to take the way that Peter has put together this introduction in two different words. If you were to read it literally, just word for word, it would say, to the elect, strangers or aliens 
of the dispersion of Pontius, Galatia, and so on and so forth. In other words, that term for elect or the chosen, which is placed last in the New American Standard, is actually placed first in Peter's address to these people. It would go chosen strangers of the dispersion. And so the question is there, where is Peter placing his emphasis? How are we to understand that? Is the elect chosen simply to be a way to describe those who are sojourners? And so the main noun there is the sojourners or the aliens. Or is Peter's main emphasis on the term elect? And he's just saying as elect, they happen to be sojourners who are scattered throughout these various places uh, in the Roman, these Roman provinces. Well, it's actually a difficult decision. I lean more towards seeing the elect as the primary noun for a variety of reasons due to word order, the emphasis of salvation in the second part. But it could go either way. But in either way that you translate it, however you want to take those words there, that's saying essentially the same thing. Peter is essentially saying this. This is the point anyway. That essentially they're making the same point. This, that as the people of God... They are identified as the elect, recipients of God's grace in Christ, and they are living as sojourners in this world. Whether they are sojourners scattered through some kind of persecution or simply to be identified as sojourners who are spiritual sojourners living in a land, this world, namely, that is not their own. And that actually brings up a second thing, just to briefly note here. And this will help us fill out a little bit about who these people are. Is Peter identifying, this is the second question, is Peter identifying a group who is scattered because of persecution, as I just mentioned, and they're suffering persecution in lands that are not their own lands, or is he simply addressing those who are in their own lands, but they're sojourners or aliens and strangers in this sense that, again, that they just simply don't belong to this world? So one would be to take it literally, Christians who are specifically scattered, or to take it metaphorically, that Christians who are generally living in lands uh, or living in this world in a place that is not their home. Well, again, these are some tough decisions. Since each of the locations mentioned, as I said earlier, fall in Roman provinces, it's possible that these are victims of some form of Roman persecution, even of Claudius, either of Claudius, mentioned in Acts 18.2. But there he says it was Jews who were cast out of Rome. But now in the early years of the church... All who bear the name of Christ were actually seen as a sect of Judaism. That's how Christianity was viewed at first. It wasn't until later that it took on its own identity and was separated from Judaism. So it's possible that when Jews were excluded or expelled from Rome by Claudius, that among them were also Gentile Christians who suffered that faith. That, you can't be sure of that, but it is a possibility. It's also possible that these are some who name the name of Christ who were scattered about and out of Rome in their homelands because of the persecution under Nero in the early 60s AD. That's also possible as well. They would certainly in that way all be sojourners and aliens, those who were made and forced to leave their homes, their places of residence and so forth because of some kind of Roman persecution. That's possible. And Peter uses an interesting word here to describe them. He says, of the diaspora. Now, interesting, again, in your New American Standard, it simply says that they are scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia. Really, it translated almost as a verb, but it's a noun. It says that they are of the diaspora, aliens of the diaspora. What is the diaspora? 
It simply means, it means the scattering, those who are spread abroad. That's what it means. The imagery here is likely picking up on the Jewish diaspora, which is in fact a part of the Jewish history when they were cast out of the land by exile in the 8th century BC by the Assyrian Empire, the northern tribes of Israel. They were scattered throughout the land. They were carried off from the land promised to them and to other nations. In the late 6th century BC, the tribe of Judah and Jerusalem, they were carried off under the empire of Babylon. Not all of them returned. And all of those Jews who remained in these outer lands were considered Jews of the dispersion, of the dysphoria. They were, because of the course of history and the Hellenization of that world through Alexander the Great, they were Hellenized Jews. As a matter of fact, that's the distinction that's made in Acts chapter 6-1, for example. That was part of the conflict that existed. There were Jews who were Jews who were from Jerusalem in that area, spoke Hebrew and all of that. And then there were other Jews in the land who were more influenced by the Greek culture. And so there was a dispersion. As a matter of fact, Jesus recognizes this in John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 35. The Jews came to, or the Gospel of John recognizes this. Uh, the Jews came to Jesus and they said to him, Where does this man, speaking of Jesus, intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? In other words, referencing those Jews who were outside of the land of Jerusalem and that, the surrounding areas and who lived among uh, what they viewed as more the pagan cultures. James identifies these people too. The beginning of his letter, he says that he's writing to the 12 tribes who are of the dispersion. And again, the New American Standard translated who are dispersed abroad. But literally, it's of the dispersion, who are of the dispersion. Those are the Jews who are spread out throughout the lands that he's writing. So it's, he's picking up on this imagery of exile, of being out of your homeland, of being in a foreign land. However, in both Jane, John and James, and this is a point to note, there is a definite article. It's referred to as the dispersion, the dispersion. Here he simply says of the dispersion, of the dispersion. What does that mean? Well, when you take that along with the fact that he's writing probably primarily to a Gentile audience and that he's drawing this analogy that they are the elect people, so distinctly attaching them to God's saving work, it's very likely that Peter is just referring generally to those who are living in lands, who are living in these lands as strangers and aliens. In other words, who are living in these lands as people of God, as the kingdom of God who are not yet home. So it's probably more metaphorical, but in either way you take it, both ideas really can be involved because no doubt there were different levels of persecution. Some were displaced from their homes, some were not. But the idea here, it seems to be in 1 Peter, is that he's writing more to a people who are living in their homelands but are living in their homelands as strangers. And so he tells them in chapter 2 to submit to every human institution. He talks about servants, how they're to be submissive to their masters. He talks about, we read it earlier in chapter 4, about those who are being maligned because they don't run into the same excess as they did before, indicating that these are people that were in the culture out of which they were saved. And he's giving them instructions in how they are to live within that culture, no longer as a part of it, but now as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. In either case, though, 
In either case, whichever way one wants to put the emphasis, the overall emphasis, the overall point is this, is that he's writing to a people who have an identity that comes with a cost and who have an identity that separates them out of this present world and places them within the people of God, the world to come. Part of a spiritual reality that's not recognized among the kingdoms of this world. That's the big idea. They're sojourners, and in that way, it refers really to all of us. It refers really to the church, to Christians in general. That we are, we are living in a land that isn't our final home. It's not our final home. So there's, a, there's a spiritual imagery here. We're sojourners in this world. We're sojourners. This isn't our home. This is what Peter's really trying to emphasize to them. You're, you're living here and you're, you're experiencing this persecution, but it's because you're not where your home really is. That's something yet to come. As a matter of fact, that's exactly how the saints of old viewed themselves. Hebrews 9, it says, By faith, speaking of Abraham, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. After mentioning Sarah, Enoch, and others, he says in verse 13, And all of these died in faith without receiving the promise. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country that is not their own. Indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's the idea for us. That's the idea here. The main idea is that, look, if you are one who has been called out and into relationship with Christ, that's your home. Christ is your home. We're just sojourners here. We're just passing through. All that God has promised to us is tasted in a foretaste here. It's inaugurated in one sense, to use that word. But it's not yet a full reality. It's not yet a full reality. We've been sealed with the Spirit. We've been indwelled by Him. We've been made to taste of the glories of the kingdom to come. We've been made to taste of the sweetness of righteousness. We've been made to know the grace of forgiveness, but not yet in its fullness, not yet in its completeness. We're just sojourners. We're just passing through. This world is not our home. And the way that he really emphasizes that is through the term chosen, elect, those who are called out. And that's where we'll have to pick it up next week. And I promise that we'll finish and move quicker throughout. But here we're establishing some themes. And the theme that Peter is laying down right here is this, is that we're not to be too comfortable in our present circumstances And God will find a variety of ways to stir up in us to long for our true home. It'll be through our spiritual growth. But very often it's through the persecution. It's through the difficulties. It's through the suffering that he'll bring that we're reminded that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people's for God, people for God's own possession. We are the people of God who have received mercy and are to live in demonstration of that received grace in this world. Well, I'm going to stop it there. I know that's just barely an introduction. And we'll pick it up next week and we'll look at what it means to be chosen of God, what it means to live as the chosen of God, what is the high privilege and honor that we have as the people elect who are called to God and to his heavenly kingdom by love. And that's what he'll say next. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ, to be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Those are incredibly, incredibly encouraging words. Pray with me and we'll go ahead and finish this morning. Father, I thank you for giving us a man like Peter who stands to us as one who knows what it means to fail, but he also knows what it means to succeed. He knows what it means to feel the shame of dishonoring you, but he knows what it means to be restored and be honored by you. He's a man who can write with tenderness. He's a man who can write with humility. He's a man we can look to and say, we can follow in his steps because we have the same spirit, because we have the same Lord. Help us to be faithful. Help us to recognize that this is not our home. And Lord, however that applies to each person here, whether it is to some, simply the reminder that they need to turn their eyes from the lures and the attractions of this world, to turn away from being blinded by the influence of a culture that does not seek to honor you or consider righteousness, whether it's those who are suffering trials that just never seem to end, those who are bearing a cost and a price for naming your name, whether it be within their family, whether it be within their workplace. I pray that you would encourage them with the reminder that our home is yet to come and help all of us to obey that command by your Apostle Paul that we are to set our mind on the things above where you are, Christ, seated at the right hand of God, waiting for your return, awaiting for the establishment of your kingdom that we might live and holiness and righteousness. Help us to this end, and for those here who don't know you are still blinded, and this world is their home, and this is as good as it's ever going to get for them. And in the end, it's going to be accountability before you. I pray that you would open their eyes to see the glory and the wonders of salvation in Christ, that they would turn from the vanities of this world, they would turn to the vanities of pride in their own flesh, and embrace you, O Christ with that humble heart that we sang even this morning, just as I am. And to that end, I commit them to your care. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Mike, I think...